Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible to Timothy in the New Testament, page 843 in the Church Bibles, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and in just a moment or two, I'm going to begin reading from verse 1 to verse 8. Just a couple of things. So soon we're going to begin working verse by verse through the Old Testament book of Haggai. And it's a short book and it won't take like it took us a couple of years to work through Romans verse by verse. But I thought it was time for the Old Testament and a minor prophet. So just keep that in mind. I still need to do a little bit more background study and I'm getting all those resources ready. So, um, But just want to let you know that. So just a few more weeks of... Um, jumping around in the Bible, which scares me, actually, for me, and for you, too. But anyway, verse 1, chapter 4, to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, you keep your head, and this is a very important scripture to me, verse 5, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Amen. Let's... Um, Thank God for his word and ask God for his help to preach it and to understand it. Just a simple line from a beautiful hymn. This will be our prayer. Pray with me, please. Oh, love that will not let us go. We rest our weary, weary soul in thee. We give you back the life we owe. That in your ocean depths it flows. May richer, fuller, be. Oh, Father, make much of yourself and your Son and your truth as it's preached. Take pity on the speaker and the listener so that all will go well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it wasn't so long ago we had a family meeting in light of things that were taking place in the life of the church, and one clear call that came out was evangelism. We heard it in every context that we were meeting in as, as a church. And um, so as a pastor, I heard it and tried to 
do my work as best as I could with God's help to, to begin to help you. And there's a few things that we've done in light of that, but um, this morning I hope is um, one more step in that process. Now, when you think about evangelism, if you're going to be honest, you will say that evangelism is an extraordinary task. It is what God uses to bring people from spiritual death to life. But it's difficult. It always has been. And we've always needed help. In very recent history, we have looked as a, as a people, and not specifically this church, but generally speaking, Christians in the West, we have looked to methods some kind of silver bullet method to, to help. So there was a context which, which began at the dawn of the 20th century and it was semi-stable, it was semi-religious and so evangelistic methods unfolded. It wasn't until the early part of the 20th century when methods uh, became the way. And one of the reasons was there was enough religious furniture in the minds of people that methods had some effect. But that context has not always been. And so you ask yourself the question, how do we know this? Well, history tells us this. So one of the things that I did in light of the call to evangelize is that you try to go back as far as you can and you do your homework and try to understand how this call to evangelism had worked itself out in history. So one of the things I did was read a book by Richard Fletcher. It was called The Barbarian Conversion. It was printed in 1998, but it's pretty much required uh, reading in most... Christian schools and seminaries, specifically in the Department of History. And the book says, speaking and focusing on Europe, that the Christianization of Europe from about 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., they said that for about a thousand years, listen carefully, most of Europe, the countrysides and, and um, the places of, 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 of population, was pretty much pagan. And it goes on to describe how each nation was Christianized by missionaries and monks. And during that time, this is what he said, evangelism was a very long, a very radical, and very relational process. Okay, so it was very long, very radical, and very relational process. So it wasn't like nowadays where you kind of blow into a community and you blow out of a community and you, you, know, you leave the residue of whatever happens. But the reason, the reason why it was a very long and very radical and very relational is because people had no basic building blocks in their minds about what Christianity was about. So they had no Christian understanding of faith. They had no Christian understanding of God, a, a personal transcendent God. They had no understanding of history. The Ten Commandments weren't even on their radar. They knew nothing. It was pagan and it was brutal. And so evangelism had to start right at the beginning. Long, drawn out, radical, relational process. Okay? But then around the year 1500, things changed. And, and because of, in light of what they did for one reason, but the whole of Europe and their cultures essentially kind of became Christianized. Where in the culture, there was some level of Christianity in the stream of conscience of the person. So people were born and raised and educated in, in a Christian way of thinking. And if the king became Christian, then, you know, not that this is the way the Bible says, but pretty much the whole nation became Christian. Hardly anyone doubted the Bible. Uh, most, if not all, believed in an afterlife. Their understanding of God and their understanding of sin was essentially a Christian one. And after 1500 AD in the West, 
all evangelism really required was just an additional step. She didn't need that long, radical, relational process. She just needed a step. In other words, people knew something about Christianity, but it wasn't personal. It was in some ways national. You could have an audience that knew that sin was a real thing. They just had to be shown, and they had to be, make it personal that they were the sinners that sin was talking about. So they believed in Jesus, no reason not to, but they had to be shown that he was the personal savior that they needed. So the world at that time in the West had kind of like a Christian conscience. They had, they had Christian intellect, but they didn't have a Christian heart, right? Not everybody was converted. And I need you to keep that in mind because that went on for a long, long time, but it slowly began to lag, okay? Because what I just said about the Christianization of Europe, and you could even say the Christianization of America, is less and less true in many places. And if specifically, if you think about the generations one or two behind us, and statistics tell us this, that people that go out and do the research, like that 35 and under, they know so little about Christ and the Bible, and all the things that most of us assumed, they don't have in their framework. Okay, so yes, there's pockets or sections in, in our world that are still traditional in the, in the Christian sense, you know, conservative values, traditional Christian values, but, but not so much of it, you know, um, now. So much of it now in, in, is either, you know, politicized or monetized or sensationalized, like look what God's doing over there, or, or kind of like just for the family, which means in recent history, we still have looked to like silver bullet methods for that help. And so what we do, I think, is we compare what, hap what happened back then, you know, those days when everybody was becoming a Christian, and say, what's going on now? And we still tend to go to methods. Now, part of that response, which began at the dawn of the 20th century, began when, it's, again, it was still semi-stable, semi-religious culture, and as a result, lots of methods unfold. Now, some of you are going to go down memory lane with me. Some of this... For some of you, this might be new. So in the middle of the 20th century, you have Billy Graham. And he honed the crusade methods, which meant like Wesley and Whitfield, Charles Finney, Billy Sunday. They started it, but Billy Graham honed the crusade method and brought it, I think, into the highest degree of efficiency and effectiveness. I mean, you can watch replays of his crusades on YouTube and on television, and you see the large crowds, and you still you kind of go, Wow. But, okay, let's just be honest, even that ministry, the ministry which bears his name, they don't do that anymore. I mean, if they do have a rally, it's, it, and I'm not trying to be mean, but be truthful, it's typically towards the political and less the gospel. Later on in the 20th century, you had for the first time, think of this, for the first time in church history, you had personal evangelism training for lay people. Okay, so think of it. Dr. G. James Kennedy, evangelism explosion. Remember that? Question one, have you, have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven and you would go and you would ask that question to people and you would listen to their answer and then you'd give them 1 John 5.13 and you would tell them what it says. You have the Lay Institute for Evangelism and that's the four spiritual laws. Some of you know that. God loves you, created you to know him personally. You're sinful, you're separated from God, you can't get there on your own. You need a person, Jesus Christ. He's the only provision that God has made. 
And then you have those conversations. Navigators, the Romans road, right? You take them through Romans and you show them why they're a sinner and you show them why Christ is the only answer to that sin. So you had programs. And what typically happened in the life of most churches, a certain percentage of people were in the local church were, were trained because they wanted to be trained in how to share their faith. And they went door to door and they went to the beaches and they went to the concerts, places like that. And so by the time you get to the 90s, the latter part of the 90s, the evangelism you know, magic bullet was basically four. So you had seeker-friendly services. You had promise keepers and purity packs, right? You know, manhood, kind of like a muscular Christianity. And that'll get the people in, or, or women's purity. And typically, you, they didn't lead with the gospel, but they would get to the gospel eventually. You have the purpose-driven life, right? Purpose meant in some ways, um, you know, you need satisfaction in life, you need meaning in life, you need purpose. And purpose number one, get converted. Or you have the end times church, where, you know, and I kind of grew up in that for a little bit, where, you know, scaring the dickens out of a person to let them know <laughs> that it's all going to come to an end. It's going to be terrible. And you better choose Jesus quick. And you know, I would choose Jesus quick. And, and a lot of churches followed these methods in a kind of like, you know, A, B, C grade. You know, some did it really well. Some didn't do it well at all. Now, on all those four methods that I just projected to you late 90s, it's way too early to say these are done because there's still the residue of that in, in the church culture. But, you know, you should know, people are telling us, the people who, you know, study these things, that 30-somethings, they're turning away from all of that. Especially, this one surprised me, especially the seeker-friendly services. So that they're not going to that anymore. And the promise keeper and the purity thing, the same thing. And now, now you have to think and you have to be honest. Now, kind of like in the, in the Christian uh, mainstream, the things that, you know, if you think about Christianity, sometimes it's like, you know, financial peace or quality of life or a cultural war. And that's what people think of a Christianity. Or, you know, forgive me, a kind of like cable news version of Christianity. We want answers, we want justice, and we want their heads, Right? And they forget about Jesus. You know, don't judge for in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. You know, the same measure, you'll be measured. But the point I want to make is, is essentially program, 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 method, method, method. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is, one, I am not judging these methods. I have no authority to do that. I have, I have thoughts, but I don't have authority. And I'm not sure the days of rolling out methods and programs, though, is what we need, at least not in principle. There was a time, right? There was a time when there was lots of Christian furniture in people's head. They may not be Christian, but there was lots of, of clear Christian furniture in their head to a degree. But what I want to suggest to you is I think way back in 500 AD, when long-lasting, radical, relational view on evangelism was the thing that they were doing, if you want to call it a method, you can. But what I am sure of is, I mean, that might be a great thing, it might not be, but what I am sure is that what is always needed in every generation is to recapture the gospel and to recapture a theological mind that, that can take other people's truth claim, right? And not yell at them with your truth, but you can be personal with them and you can gently run their truth 
claim to their logical end and you show them how fallen it is, the liabilities of it, and then you take them to Jesus and you run his truth claim to its logical end. Now, there's other liabilities, right? When you think about evangelism, the liabilities of not understanding guilt and sin, the liabilities of going to a church where, you know, week by week, you're basically telling people how to be better and, you know, just pick your poison of what you need to be better at or watch out for and just pick your party of whatever you should watch out for. The liabilities of a gospel message, which, you know, you try to create supermen and superwomen, but not broken men and broken women who, who have been forgiven. And so they have compassion on the souls of other broken men and other broken women who have not been forgiven. No matter who they may be. Now if your Bible's open, you're going to see that Paul is talking to Timothy. The context where Paul is talking to Timothy is very clear. Evil is on the rise. If you look back at chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, what you'll see is that you know, people rather than loving God will love themselves. And from that love will flow not you know, love for the souls of men and women, but, but love for the material world. Love for themselves. And of course, the vices that we all struggle with are there in varying degrees. Self-centeredness. Paul then lists those vices in the opening verses of chapter 3. And then you have on top of that, we'll get to this in 4, there's false teachers. A thin veneer of piety, a thin veneer of religion. But no substance, no truth, no power. Okay? So you're putting Timothy. And I just, you know, I, I can identify with him. Weak man. Selfish world. False teachers everywhere. And then Paul tells Timothy, verse 5, you see that in chapter 4 if your Bible's open? Do the work of an evangelist. Okay, so this is what Paul does. He's going to tell Timothy what to do. He's going to tell him how to do it, and he's going to tell him why he should do it. Okay? What? Those are our points. What, how, and why. And what I want you to see is what is Tim- Paul is saying to Timothy applies to me, but in some degrees it applies to you. I want you to know that this is not a method. This is a principle, meaning this will be for all time, not just our pocket of time, It'll be for every context, not only some context. It will never change, no matter what. The context, the people, the audience, never. Principle, not method. Number one, then, what to do. Okay, so just just think of this. Verse one, Paul is telling to Timothy, in front of God, and in front of Christ, and in view of Christ's return, and in view of his kingdom... So this is weighty. Do you feel the weight of that? I'm speaking to you in front of God and in front of Jesus in light of his return and in light of his kingdom. I'm telling you, Timothy, to evangelize. That's what to do. Now, if you look at verse 1, the Greek word that Paul says, preach the word there, preach the word, verse 2, excuse me, is the Greek word caruso. It's a familiar word to this body. It's the word for preaching that Paul chose, and it's the word for herald. Okay, so you know this, but a herald is where you go into the marketplace in the ancient world and you give people the news of that day. 
Okay, so heralds say, this is what has happened. There's a great movie, if you haven't seen it, called News of the World, Tom Hanks. I watched it by myself. I don't think my wife, it was great, you should watch it. But essentially, part of the thing was, he would read the newspapers to the world, the 19th century Western world in America, the people couldn't read, most people couldn't read, and so he would read the news of the world. He was heralding. So heralds say, this is what happened. They were not philosophers. They didn't give advice. They weren't, not, you know, they weren't like a super psychiatrist. They told people what had already happened. And so for the New Testament, the word that, Cha, that Paul chose for preaching, herald, that is big. And it's substantial. And what it tells us is this, the essence of preaching, right? The spirit of preaching, the basics, the fundamental nature, if you would, the lifeblood is not telling people what to do in a moral sense, but you tell them what has been done and what it means. Now, of course, when you preach the Bible, you will in degrees tell people what to do, but telling them what to do never hangs by itself. It always, if you would, hangs on the cross. Because the essence of Christian preaching is to tell people not what to do, but what has been done. What has been done to save them. You're a herald. But I think you know this to be true. Moralistic preaching is so common in American pulpits that, that you know, if you're just having an ordinary conversation with anybody, and for people, you know, you try to correct them, correct their behavior, more often than not, you will hear this. Oh, so now you're going to preach to me, right? So you're trying to tell them don't, or that's bad. Like, oh, so now, so now you're preaching to me. Because people have learned in our context to associate preaching with moral, either moral improvement or moral scolding. But they do not associate preaching with the proclamation of the fitness of Christ. The adequacy of his blood to save to the uttermost those to come to God through faith in him. In other words, Paul says the very core of preaching, which means the core of the Bible, the core of the word, is to show people that Jesus Christ alone saves. And therefore, they don't and they can't save themselves. And that is good news. It's news for the needy. It's the message of grace. That's the gospel. And therefore, because Timothy is being called to preach, he's called to herald the gospel. Okay, so Paul's life is coming to an end. This is the end. And what do you tell the person who's going to follow you before you go? Herald the gospel. It's the essence of what you say. It's the essence of the Bible. Do, because when you do that, Verse 5, do the work of an evangelist. Okay, so that's Timothy, and that's for people like me, specifically. But is it for the whole church as well? Well, I would say yes in this way, two ways. You read the Bible, you can read in, in the book of Acts, Acts 8. After the Christians, after being thrown out of Jerusalem, you remember Stephen was martyred, and the town went crazy, and they threw all the Christians out. They, and this is the Bible, they went out to, to preach it's the word for like gossip the gospel everywhere they went. Now, just follow me for a minute. So they preached the gospel wherever they went. So what they did was they said what their pastor taught them, said to them, and they modeled him. So when they got kicked out of town, they did what he did. Now, stay with me. What if the pastor just basically taught morality, 
you know, therapeutic moral lessons, made them great parents and made them great kids and made them great, great, great people and they had high quality of life and they were doing swell and they kicked out of town. What are they going to say to the people? You want to know how to do swell? You want to know how to be great? Or you want to say, this is the this is reason why I was kicked out of town. Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for sins, he was resurrected. People saw him. He's the only one that can save. And we need to take that to heart. We need to take that to heart because it's the gospel. We need to take it to heart because people's souls are at stake. So, once again, we go to history. Michael Green, many years ago, he wrote the book Evangelism in the Local Church. And what it was, again, it was another historical study. Okay, this is the second time I've taken you back to history. It was a historical study of how evangelism actually happened in the early church. And the thing that should strike you is in the earliest days of the church, virtually all evangelism always happened one-to-one through lay people going out and telling other people the gospel. It didn't happen by bringing, you know, a non-Christian into church. They heard the gospel message because, one, it was too dangerous. It was dangerous to bring a non-Christian to church because, you know, they could be like an agent of evil, right? You could bring that person in. They couldn't give a rip about Jesus Christ. Mary and Jim and Bertha and all those people, they're Christians. Go get them, arrest them, throw them in jail. I don't know where I got the name Bertha, but she just came out. So sorry. So usually what happens, you saw them converted or on their way to being converted and then you brought them safely into the context of a church. Most churches would met, you know, in secret places. And so Michael Green says, by history, one-to-one is how the early church grew. One-to-one evangelism. Okay, so just follow me. Timothy, you preach the gospel. People listen. They apply it. They go into all the context that the sovereignty of God and the providence of God takes them with that good news. And so he says the reason why the church grew was not a method, but a way of life. Individual Christians evangelizing people they knew and therefore what Timothy is being told to do, which is evangelizing, is something that in some way every Christian is being told to do. Okay, that's number one, what to do evangelism. Number two, how to do it. Well, again, there's at least five things that that Paul tells Timothy. First of all, do you see it there? Be prepared in season and out of season, right? That's at the very end there of, um, let's see, verse two. Very beginning, excuse me. So, to be prepared in season and out of season you ask yourself the question, what does it mean to be prepared? If you have a King James Version, it says be instant. Be instant in season and out of season. Or one translation says be urgent in season and out of season. So the Greek word is, you just can't translate that one Greek word into one English word. So sometimes you have to use more words because it means to be always immediately ready, right? To be ready to do something at the drop of a hat. It means not needing to say, I'd be happy to help you, but let me go away for a bit, prepare, and then once I get prepared, I can help you. No, this means that you have, when you have the opportunity, you're ready. So when you have the opportunity to evangelize, you're so prepared. You have thought it out. You've done this before. You've been equipped so that you're not afraid and you're not ready, and excuse me, you are ready to start talking 
when the opportunity is there. You are instant. In season, out of season. We'll get to that in a little bit. Urgent. Now, think with me. That's pretty remarkable to obtain. But what a journey to get there, right? What a journey. Do you know that book, Oh, the Places You Will Go? I think it's Dr. Seuss. And he has a little line, and will you succeed? It's a question mark. You know, the plate, will you succeed? Yes, you will indeed. 98 and three-fourth percent guaranteed, except when you don't, because sometimes you won't. That's a fair answer, isn't it? So when our non-Christian friends have an objection about something, something about Christianity, we, just, we, we know how to answer. And when our non-Christian friends bring up a subject that we know, if we could just tilt it a little bit, we can move them to talk about Jesus, we're not afraid to go there. We're not afraid because, number one, we're prepared. Second thing Paul says is to be intelligent. Okay, and He doesn't say that exactly, but look at verse 2. When he says, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So the word, the last word there, instruction, it's the Greek word dedeke, and it means teaching. And the word careful there, careful instruction, is just what you think. It means very intelligent, very nuanced, right? So you're, you're tilting towards the needs of the other person when you correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience. So this means you're not just kind of giving people slogans. You know, you're not, you know, throwing scriptures at them over and over again with no explanation. It means you become a student of men and women. Can I tell you why I wrote that? I used to have a, I still have it. And to my shame, I haven't prayed this in so long. I used to pray, God help me to be a student of men and women. And I, and I came out of my head and I wrote it down and I repented because I haven't prayed that prayer in a long time. To be intelligent means you're a student of men and women. It means you're telling people who doubt. You're not just saying, just believe. You're giving them a good, sound, intelligent, towards their bent answer. Remember the book of Jude? It's not a popular book in the New Testament, but it says, be merciful to those that doubt. That's a command from the Bible. Be merciful to the doubters. So one of the best ways I think that you could be merciful is to listen to people. And to listen to what they say and say, okay, let's just think this through. Let's just think this through what you're saying. And to be intelligent means, let me think about you. Right? Let me think about you in ways that, that I think about myself. Isn't that the second great commandment? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So one of the things I've been reading, and maybe this example will help, is that if you're going to understand people, then you're going to have to understand the times. And so one of the things I read is that when it comes to evangelizing, specifically young people, young couples, and especially young men, one conclusion, this one study that I followed said, more than ever, this group of people seek personal, meaningful, long-term friendships and dialogues. Okay? Young people, young couples, and especially young men. So you ask yourself, why is that so? 
right? You're trying to understand the context. You're trying to have intelligent conversations with people. You, you're putting yourself in other people's shoes to understand them. A student of men, a student of women. Okay, why? Well, here's one reason. 63% of all youth suicides are from a fatherless home. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of all children who show behavior disorder come from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. Father fact in education. Fatherless children are twice as likely to drop out of school. Statistics, these are like right now statistics, show that 7 million American dads were absent from the life of their minor or growing up age children. 11% of homes, so this is something like 14 million homes, have an alcoholic father who spend most of their time drinking or recovering from the effects of their alcohol. Okay, so that's a context that is very real. And the data people are saying, you know, people, young people, young men, especially young couples, they need some... They need some TLC from Christians. So intelligent evangelism means, you know, not that you're Henry Poindexter, you know, and you're, you're the five proofs for God, but you can do that in a kind way. It means I am in it for the long haul. That's what it means. I can be a friend. I can be a helper to them. I can be a student of them, not to judge them, but to help them. So before Tom Terrence assumed the role very jealous of this, the president of C.S. Lewis Institute. Before he did that, he was a co-pastor of a multiracial church in Washington, D.C. Before he was that, he was a seminary student. But before that, he blew up buildings. At least he tried to blow up buildings. In the 1960s, he targeted properties of Jews, blacks, the groups he hated most, sometimes Roman Catholics also. In the 1960, I think it was 62, 3, he joined the Ku Klux Klan which landed him in a state penitentiary. He escaped, got recaptured, was sent back to solitary confinement in the same prison in a six, by foot, six foot by nine windowless prison cell. He became a Christian. Question, his relationship with his father, good or bad? Bad. At best, it was troubled. At worst, it was non-existent. But, listen, but he had some friends. The wife of the FBI agent who was the lead, um, uh, who was the lead in the investigation, the lead agent, knew he wasn't a Christian, began to pray for him, began to send him tracts. Other people who heard sent stuff to him, and he became a follower of Jesus Christ. They did more. After his conversion, the FBI agent, the wife, with a few others, tried to secure the early release of Tom Terrence, the president now of the C.S. Lewis Institute. They were successful. That's long-haul, intelligent Christianity. Can I say this? And I don't mean to, you know, be crude. But right now, what's in the air is you did all the future talk, and this is, this is the intelligent talk. It's like, okay, if you plan well and you do good, and you, you can go all the places you want to go, anytime you want to go, and it sounds so intelligent. Honestly, right now, it sounds like hell. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like hell, and I don't want to go to hell. And I don't want people like Terrence to go to hell. 
Be ready. Be intelligent. Third, be practical. That's the word, verse 2. To, so be prepared in season and out of season to correct. The word correct actually is better translated to convict. So to convict isn't the same as correct. To convict means that you, that as you tell people the word, you tell people about Jesus, people are going to say, okay, this is something I really need to do. They are convicted. They are convicted. My dad was so smart when we were kids. And he would punish us and specifically me. By the way, he used to say, Joe, you need to get punished every morning first thing because you're going to do something wrong during the day. He was, say, he was kidding when he was saying that but because my dad's a lovely dad, but I always remember that. But the other thing that I always remember, and you know this, is whenever I would do something wrong, instead of coming out all guns a-blazing, he would say, oh, Joe. Oh, Joe, how could you? And I still remember that. I don't want to cry now, but it just got right to here. He's like, I'm right, Dad, how could I? That's conviction. Conviction means that you persuade people so well that they just cannot live without the truth that you're telling them. They know that they're useless without Jesus. That the only thing to do, the only thing to do is to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. That's what Paul is saying. So we have to be careful. You know, we don't, to, to convict, is we're not trying to be, and I see this in a lot of young evangelistic men. You just, you're not trying to be a heretic hunter. You know, the brutality of telling somebody and the joy of telling somebody you're wrong again. You need to get down and say things that you know will mean something to the life of that person. You need to tell them things like, look, if you're trying to fill up your life with work and wine and women and men and sex and money and, and trips and religious stuff, it's not going to work. How do you know? Well, I kind of tried to do that for a while. I still do. You need hope. Here's your hope. You, you, you have so much pent-up guilt. That's why you're always not feeling good. You need forgiveness. You're valuable. Christ can give you the identity that will never wash away. You are like me. You're sinners. Let's talk this through. Be prepared. Be intelligent, practical, very listener-oriented, right? Really make sure that you get to the heart of what is bothering the person. And you try to somehow connect the gospel to that with great patience. That's verse 2 again, right? Be prepared in season, out of season, correct rebuke, encourage with great patience. Okay? Now, this is really important. This means rebuke is not done with hate on your face, right? When you rebuke which you have the authority to do, it's not done with hate on your face. It's done with love in your heart. What people used to know about Christianity, like when I was growing up, nobody has that kind of, a lot of people do not have that kind of furniture in their head anymore. They have no understanding of the Bible. They don't. I, mean, I think I told you this before. There was a study done by Harvard University in 2016 when they asked the common person, when you think about Christianity, what do you think of? They said Jerry Falwell. That was the, the highest answer they got. And so we need to be patient. It's going to be harder than ever before to see people to faith in Jesus Christ. And you don't have a magic bullet. There is no magic bullet. It takes time. Personal connection, personal relationships, really spending time. Now, if you're thinking, you've only got so much time. But it takes time. So the process is going to be slow, very slow at first. 
And it may be slow, so slow, and this happened to Nicole and I, and I can't give you the full context, but it might be so slow that you begin to share your faith with them, and the first thing they say to you is like, you know what, you're not a fool. We're not going to come to Jesus yet, but we like you, and you don't seem like a fool. And then maybe the second step is when you talk about God, and you talk about what he means to you, and what Jesus has done for you, then the doors open a little wider. You're not a fool. You keep talking about Jesus. I really like you. And then by God's grace, I'm going to come to Jesus too. Finally, number five, be balanced. And and what I mean by balance is, again, it doesn't just say rebuke. That's so easy. And it doesn't say just encourage. That would be easy too. It says rebuke and encourage. Truth and love. But also, look down at the scripture, in season and out of season. Now, I can see that this is going to be a part two, so I'm going to close here shortly because I I don't want to go forever, but I am going to go for now, and then we'll be done. When Paul means by by in season and out of season, he's saying, like, you don't market Christianity in the way that people market now. So if you watch a YouTube video about a painting, like painting pictures, now you watch a YouTube video about painting pictures, you know two things are going to happen. All the other YouTube videos, or most of them, are going to be about painting, and then you're going to get some kind of update on your phone, or some kind of like uh, alert on your phone, painting. You know, you can buy five paintbrushes for five dollars at Aces Painting, whatever. You're going to get, that's marketing, okay? The push is to talk to people and try to convince people you know who have an interest in painting, who think painting is great, so it's not really hard to convince people who think painting is great to become painters and buy their products. Paul is saying no to that at all. He said, no. Paul is saying, I don't care whether people seem like they're interested or they're not interested at all. I don't care if Christianity seems favorably, you know, disposed for people or or no, they don't like it at all. Paul says, whatever context, whatever season, let it out. Preach. Preach. In season. Out of season. Preach. You're not looking for customers. And we're definitely not looking for bottoms to fill a seat. We're looking for God to build his kingdom. I think I'll end there. Let's pray. God and Father, the title of the sermon is Get On With It. And I, I pray that by your grace we would, beginning with myself. No one need beat, them, beat themselves up today, whether they're a good evangelist or not a good evangelist. It doesn't matter right now. What matters is that people in this room that belong to Jesus Christ are covered. They're covered. And they can be helped. And I believe that everybody in here wants help. They see the world as it is and they see the beauty of the kingdom as it is and as it will be and they want to bring as many people into the kingdom as you will allow them to. So God, we are out of season, aren't we? I mean, it just seems like nobody wants to be a Christian anymore. It's hard sell. We, we pray, God, that you would give us grace to just keep, keep preaching, gossiping, proclaiming the word, that we would be prepared, 
that we would be intelligent, we'd be ready, ready, prepared, ready, that we would be loving, merciful, patient, God, and keep at the task. It's the most important task. Help us to give up other things. Not that they're bad, but they just get in the way. And may, by your grace, all of us, in meaningful ways, do the work of an evangelist. And we pray this in Christ's name. And then finally, God, may you bless them and keep them. Make your face shine upon them and be gracious to them and turn your face to them and give them peace. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by the sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestatchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His Church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.